John 9 10. Then John 11 and 12 reaches a climax. Each one of these, there's an occasion, the sign, the miracle, there's a dispute, there's a sermon, and normally there's a sequel. Now, John 5 and 6 constitute the beginning of this conflict between Jesus and the Jews. <clears throat> and John selected two events that epitomize this conflict, one in John 5 and one in John 6. Now, have we struck this theme before? Indeed, we have. John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness, John 1, 5, and the darkness did not overcome it. We struck it in John 1, 11. He came into his own, and his own received him not. Opposition. And this is a dominating motif that runs through the Gospel of John. Revelation, what's the next word? Rejection. What's the third word? Reception. That's the whole Gospel of John in capsule form. Revelation, he came to his own. Rejection, his own received him, not reception, but as many as received him. Revelation, John 1, 2, 3, and 4. Rejection, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Reception, John 13 through 18. The climax of rejection, 18 and 19, the crucifixion. And the climax of reception, John 20, the resurrection. And then we have a poster. Now, listen, this is real good. Let's turn it on. All right. They're going to, all right, that's good. I'm glad you got there that that's real good. Now, John 5 and 6 go together. John chapter 5, the emphasis is on the person of Christ. John chapter 6, the emphasis is on the work of Christ. Now, the liberals say that these chapters are displaced. I am not going to get into that. don't think it be possible. But the liberal approach is that John 6 belongs before John 5. But that's been answered many times, and the, among many other things, never any manuscript discovered where they've been reversed. But more than that, more than that, as Godet pointed out, before one will appreciate the value of Jesus' work, he must understand who Jesus is, the nature of his person. So in John chapter 6, the theme is the infinite dignity of Christ. And in John, John chapter 5, the infinite dignity of Christ, equality with God the Father. John chapter 6, the emphasis is upon his death. Who he is, John 5, what he did, John 6. Now I want to read two verses. You look at it in your Bible. John chapter 5. You have the claim of Christ. John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus answered, My Father worketh hitherto, and I also am working. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself. Now what's the next word? That's the theme of John 5. The equality of the Son with the Father. The equality of Jesus Christ with God. That and the rest of the sermon is an expansion on that theme. Now turn over to John chapter 6. It's the person of Christ in John 5. It's the work of Christ in John 6. John 6, verse 33. Then Jesus said unto them, uh, verse 33, For the bread of God, well, let's verse 32. 
Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. Verse 35, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. So in John 6, the emphasis is upon the work of Christ. Now, a couple of more things before we look at John chapter 5. We read in John chapter 5, verse 1, that uh, John says, After this or after these things, there was a feast of the Jews. Now, what feast is there? Well, nobody really knows. But uh, there are two basic views on this. One is that it's the Passover, or it's the second Passover. The first Passover is in John chapter 2. The second Passover is in John chapter 5. The third Passover is in John chapter 6. And the fourth Passover is in John 13 to 18. He was crucified on the fourth one. Now, if that's so, if this, this one in John 5 is, is a Passover, it's not called that, but if it is a Passover, then there are one, two, three, and one-half years of ministry to Christ. But if that is not a Passover, then we have Passover number one in John 2, and Passover number two, Passover number one in John 2, Passover number two in John 6, and Passover number three in John 13 to 18. And this is a feast in chapter 5 that lies between 2 and 3. And that means we only have one, two, and a half years ministry of Christ. That's why you'll get some commentaries that will say Jesus' public ministry was two and a half years, and others that say Jesus' public ministry was three and a half years. Now, that problem will never probably be solved this side of heaven. I take it that this is a Passover. If so, then the ministry of Christ lasted three and one-half years, and there are four Passovers, two, five, six, thirteen. If that's not a Passover, then it only lasted approximately two and one-half years. Now, John chapter 5 marks the beginning of the real conflict of Jesus with the, with the Pharisees, and this is a theme which is important throughout all the rest of the gospel. Jesus does his signs, makes his claims. Instead of faith, there's unbelief and strenuous opposition. And this opposition grows. In John 5, they persecute him. They seek to persecute him. John 6, they seek even more to persecute him. John 8, they pick up stones to kill him. John 12, they make plans with certainty to put him to death. And this is the thing that dominates uh, the um, rest of the Gospel of John, the opposition. Why did they oppose Christ? Well, when we read the synoptics in the Gospel of John, uh, there are probably seven, several reasons. They opposed him because of his humble origin. Look, they said, does any good thing come out of Nazareth? They opposed him because of his humble origin. They opposed him because of his followers and his company. He kept company with publicans and sinners. 
They kept, they were posted because of his failure to support the ritualism of the Pharisees and especially the practice of the Sabbath. And they opposed him because he dared to heal on the Sabbath and violated some of the regulations which they had, with which they had circumscribed the Sabbath. And then the highest one, as far as we are concerned, though probably not the one that bothered them the most, was the fact that he laid claim to be equal to God. And that was blasphemy. And that's the charge on which they tried him at the three Jewish trials. When they took him to Pilate, the charge was made to treason because Pilate wasn't interested in the charge of blasphemy. He could be less interested in a religious controversy. What did catch Pilate's ear was that this man claimed to be a new king, and that's treason. But in the Jewish trials, the three trials, they tried him on blasphemy. John 5 and John 6 are a unit doctrinally. One of them underscores the person of Christ. The other underscores the death of Christ. Now, let's look just for a minute at the outline of John chapter 5. The outline. Now, I don't want you to look at your outline because I'm going to give you what's not in your outline and you're going to get it next week. So once you write anything down, you'll see this next week, but I like for us to see where we're going. We've got basically three things here. First, the sign, the sequel, and the sermon. That makes it easy to remember. The sign is in John chapter 5, verse 1 to the middle of verse 9. The sign, the healing of the infirm man, paralyzed for 38 years. The miracle. The sign. Secondly, we have the sequel to the sign. That is the dispute of the Jews with Jesus. The first dispute was over healing on the Sabbath. They got hold of that man, and they said to him, why are you carrying your bed on the Sabbath? You know, there were two things that were wrong with that man. First of all, he shouldn't have been healed on the Sabbath. The second was he's carried his bed on the Sabbath. Now, the far greater one was being healed on the Sabbath. But you know, the tendency of ritualists is always to focus on the small things. And they did. And you know what happened there? Eventually, uh, they found out who healed them, and they confronted Christ. And uh, they said, how come you heal upon the Sabbath? Now, in the gospel, the synoptic, he said, I heal because the ox is in the ditch. But he didn't justify it here on that. He justified it here on the basis of who he is. I am the God of this universe. My father worked providence from Genesis 3, from the fall of the creation. My father works day in and day out. He takes those Sabbaths off. He works, and I also work. And they saw that to be a claim to divine dignity, equality with God. Now, the rest of the servant, John, Chapter 5, 19 to 47 deals with that. Now, will you look here? We're going to touch on this next week. You'll need to write anything. The theme, the, the thrust of the sermon of John chapter 5, 19 to 37, 47, is the unity and equality of Jesus with God the Father. 
verses 19 and 20, 20, the unity and equality of the Son with the Father. Verses 21 to 30, the prerogatives of the Son, the rights of the Son, to give life, to judge all men, and to resurrect all men, prerogative. And then John 5, 31 to 47, the witnesses to the Son. John the Baptist, the Scriptures, the Father, and so on down the line. That's a servant. And the thrust of it, the theme of it, is the unity and equality of Jesus with God the Father. And we'll touch on, we're going to study John 5, 19 to 30 next week. Now, tonight we want to take John 5, 1 to 18. Now, let's begin. John chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. Here's the occasion. The healing of the infirm man. Verse 1 gives us the time. The feast of the Jews. And John was right for Gentiles, so he explained it. It's the feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He was up north in Galilee. A lot of things had transpired between 4 and 5. The synoptics tell us about these. Jesus went down to Nazareth, preached in the synagogue, shortest sermon, one sentence. This day has this scripture been fulfilled in your ears. One sentence, see. Now, there are a lot of church members would like to call a pastor to preach like that. See, one cent. And no collection. I'll tell you they'd like that. But he preached one sentence and sat down. That was all. They didn't have to say anymore. I'm the fulfillment. Then he went down to Capernaum, called the first disciples, did many things down there. And then he came, perhaps April, and he went down from the north to the south because it was uh, going south. It went down to, went up rather, because you were going up topographically. He went up to Jerusalem. And uh, John 5, 2, now there's at Jerusalem by the sheep gate or sheep pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue, Bethesda, having five colonnades. And in these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, a blind and lame and paralyzed. Now the rest of verse 3 and verse 4 ask perhaps the side of your Bible will say it's not in the better text. This is a manuscript problem. But whether or not it's in the better text, no doubt it reflects something which the Jews believe strongly because in verse 8, verse, uh, verse 7, the man said, the impotent man answered him, uh, to him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled, when the water is troubled to put me down in the pool. But while I'm coming, another steppeth down before me. If that were not there, probably a scribe tried to explain verse 7. And he did so right in the margin. And that's the explanation he gave in verse 3 and 4. Later on, a couple hundred years, another scribe took that and put that into the text itself. Now, that's a problem in textual criticism. It doesn't alter our doctrine of the verbal inspiration of the Scripture. So here were a great multitude of people lying around this pool. And verse 5, a certain man was there who had an infirmity 30 and uh, 8 years. Now, we don't know what was the problem of this man. 
diseases that told us, uh, probably it was some form of paralysis. The man said, I have nobody to help me when the water's troubled to get down to the pool. So apparently it was a form of lameness and paralysis. The other thing we know about it is that, um, that it probably was due to sin because the Lord Jesus came to him and said, sin no more lest a worse thing happen. And the implication of those words in verse 15 is that um, this, this sickness was due to sin. Verse 14, the old hour made well, sin no more, lest the worst thing come unto thee. The inference there is that this man's sickness was due to sin. Is all sickness due to sin? Absolutely no. <coughs> is some sickness due to sin? Yes. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us that, verse 28 to 32. For this cause, because you've disgraced the Lord's Supper, some of you are sick, some of you weep, some of you are sick, and some of you sleep. That is, you've died. Uh, will God judge, you mean, a Christian by physical death? He, he certainly will. 1 Kings chapter 13 and Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Is some sickness due to sin? Yes. Is all sickness due to sin? No. And, may I say, I have no right to go into the sick room of someone and tell them that their sickness is due to sin. That's a very cruel thing. Even though that person may be a reprobate. Even if that person were a reprobate, I would have no way of knowing that his sickness was due immediately to sin. See, God doesn't tell me that. And uh, I have no right to tell anybody, and I happen to believe that's a cruel thing, although some people take that upon themselves to do it. The other thing we know about is this man had been sick for 38 years. 38 years, that's a long time, hadn't it? And this is literal. Literal. How long was Israel in the wilderness? Well, how long did they were they in disobedient? Thirty-eight years. Thirty-eight years. Is there any connection between this and that? None whatsoever. See, these are things that liberals like to pick up and said, this story of the healing of the man is not really literally true. It's an allegory. It was picked up out of the thirty-eight years of wilderness. So this man was sick for thirty-eight years. Not at all. There's no connection between the 38 years of the wilderness and the 38 years sickness of this man. It's simply one of those notes that indicates the rectitude and integrity of the, of the story. Now, the Lord Jesus said to him in John chapter 5, verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew supernaturally that he'd been there a long time, the Lord said to him, Will thou be made? Well, Jesus focused on the real issue. Do you want to be cured? You say, why, certainly that man would want to be cured. Not so fast. Not so fast. You know, some people get in a condition where they tend to enjoy it. This man's character had been warped by this 38 years of sickness. You can see that by the way he responds to the Lord. He doesn't thank him. He's like the nine lepers. 
When the Pharisee said, who made you well? He said, I don't know. And later on, when the Lord Jesus told him who he was, the first thing he did, he trotted off to the Pharisee and betrayed Jesus to the Pharisee. This man had suffered from 38 years, and it left an effect upon his emotional, and psychological, and uh, uh, moral well-being. And this physical healing didn't cure that thing. See, Jesus touches on the pulse of the thing. Even more true in the sinner. Why is it a man is not saved? He doesn't want to be saved. And the real crux of the matter in witnessing and preaching is this. Do you want to be cured spiritually? Do you want to be saved? Do you want to be saved? Remember John chapter 3? The Lord Jesus came into this world of light, and men love what? Darkness rather than light. Why doesn't a man say? Because he doesn't want to be saved. Why not? Because he'd have to give up his sin and want to be saved. Matthew 23, 37. The Lord Jesus got on the mountain, overlooking Jerusalem, and wept. How oft I would have gathered you together as a hen doth her brood, but you would not. You didn't want to. You didn't want to. Why is the man not saved? He doesn't want to be saved. So when Jesus asked him this question, he put his finger on the real issue. We tend to say, that's a foolish question for Jesus to answer. Not at all. It's no more foolish than to ask a man when you're witnessing him, do you really want to be saved? And you know, you'll find that a man will, he will wing-wang for a couple hours and get you off the track for a couple hours. And he's trying to skirt the issue. And what is the issue? He doesn't want to be saved. And the sooner we address him to that, that he loves his sin more than the Savior, and he doesn't want to be saved, the better off he is, and the more time we are saved. See? You know what Proverbs says? Answer a fool according to his folly. And the quicker we get to that point, the better it'll be. Jesus got to it right away. He cut to the heart of it. Do you want to be well? That probably staggered the man. See? You know the Lord Jesus used the shock treatment. Barnhouse used the shock treatment. I never could quite do it that way. Barnhouse, for example, went into the Philadelphia one day, went into the uh, hospital room of a, an atheist. The atheist had lived in Philadelphia for many, many years. And for many, many years, he had been a thorn in Barnhouse's side. For many, many years, he had ridiculed and made fun of Barnhouse. Barnhouse went into the room in which the man had been placed. The man was dying of an incurable disease. The doctors gave him about two weeks to live. Barnhouse went into his room, sat down on a chair, looked at him, and didn't say a word and didn't say a word for about five minutes. <laughs> and after about five minutes, the man finally broke the silence, and he said, well, Barnhouse, what are you doing here? And Barnhouse said, I'm watching an atheist die. You see? <laughs> now, that's the shock treat. <laughs> I couldn't do that. But you see, and, then, and, and the man said, well, he was staggered. He said, 
You, you, you wouldn't make fun of a dying man, would you? Barnhouse said, no, I'm not making fun. He said, I've been at the bedside of dozens, probably hundreds of Christians. They have died with a peace and tranquility and assurance. They were ready to go and to meet their God. I want to see if an atheist has that peace and quietness and assurance. Now, I don't know whether he ever led that man to the Lord at all, but you see, he faced him with something. Jesus used the shock treatment. You want to be well. Well, the man said in verse 7, the impotent man answered, Sir, I have no man. I have no man. My inability. I have no man when the water's troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. That reminded me of the, uh, what happened when I was trying to get my seat reservation out of Bombay to London. Another steppeth down before me. <laughs> Got the seat I wanted. <laughs> but um, uh, anyway, the man said, I can't do it, and I don't have anybody that cares for me. I've been here 38 years. I'm a too long-lasting fixture around here. Nobody cares, and here I am. So the Lord Jesus said, and here's another shock. Jesus said, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Rise. Jesus commands the impossible. But when he commands the impossible, he enables the man to do the impossible. He commanded the impossible. Why? And then he enabled the man to do the impossible. Just as he commands you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is an impossibility. But what did he see in the man? A willingness, a desire to be healed. But when he sees that earnestness in us, then he grants to us that which we don't have ourselves. He said to the man, rise. And the man arose. Jesus gave him the ability when he was willing. Then he said, secondly, do what? Take your what? Don't make any provision for relapse. See? You get converted, you've been drinking, then throw all the bottles away. Don't make any provision for relapse. And then the third one, walk, get active. Rise, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And verse 9, the man was made well and took up his bed and walked. The cure of the sinner, the cure of this man, was instantaneous and complete. I wish I had time to do it. Don't. This story is true. It's literally true. But all of these signs are also pictures of God's dealing with the sinner. And this man represents a sinner. As this man was totally incapable of getting down, getting the cure, so the sinner is totally incapable of saving himself. As, secondly, Jesus asked the man one question. Do you want to be cured? So the Lord Jesus comes to us and says, Do you want to be saved? Do you want to be holy? A man says, Well, I'm not one of the elect. 
I'm not one of the elect. Do you want to be holy? Well, no. Well, then why worry? Because election is first to holiness and then to heaven. If you want to be holy, then you're one of the elect. If you don't want to be holy and you want to go on to your sin and want to go to hell, then don't complain to God about not being a member of the elect, see? It's just that simple. As Spurgeon said many years ago, elections to holiness. You want to be holy? Then you're one of the elect, see? God will deal with you. You want to be healed? He asked the man. The man responded. Then Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, walk. What does the Lord say to us? Same thing. Rise, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Rise, take up your bed. Don't make any provisions for relapse. If you have some old companions that bring you down, then cut it. If you have some old habits that tempt you, then stay away from them. If you have a problem with thinking clean and pure, then don't look at the television program or read that novel anymore. That's, that's simple. That's simple. You want to kill the old nature, then don't feed it. Starve it. Okay? Starve it. Don't make any provision for relapse. What do you say, third? Walk. Walk, action. Get busy and serve the Lord. When Andrew got saved, what's the first thing he did? One found his brother. When John got saved, what's the first thing he did? One found his brother. Why well, a young man, I think I mentioned this to one of the classes, either the Monday night or Friday morning class. But I see from the way you remember the outline that you probably don't remember this anyway. <laughs> one of our students got up about two weeks ago and I think it was a Friday morning class, perhaps, I told this. One of our students got up, and um, I knew his mother and daddy, knew his grandmother. She happened to be our house mother here at one time. And uh, he has three brothers, and uh, one of them was not a Christian. This boy goes to school. He got saved about a year and a half ago. He's now at our school. His brother got saved a week before this boy got up gave his testimony right in the middle of the auditorium at chapel one day. He said, my brother got saved a week ago. Since that time, he has already led two of his friends to Jesus Christ as Savior, and he's got four other people that he's talked to, and he doesn't know how to answer some of their questions, and he wants me to go with him and talk to these four people. That's walking. See, that's action. And that's the way you grow. And I'm glad... When I got saved and went away to an academy at the age of 15 going on to 16, that they invited me down to a street meeting. And I didn't know what a street meeting was. I never heard that term. I didn't know what it was. But it was getting off the campus downtown. So I said, I'll go. So we went down for the street meeting, and they made me get up on the bench <laughs> and give a testimony in that park, you know. So I got up on the bench. I said, boys, hold me up. I got up on that bench and gave a testimony. And then they put some tracts in my hand and told me to go out and pass those tracts around and talk to people. And I did. I'm glad somebody took me down. And quite frankly, God judged them for violating the Sabbath. One reason God took them 70 years 
into the Babylonian captivity was that for 70 years they had violated the Sabbath law regarding the land. That is, once every seven years, let the land lie fallow. In Jeremiah, matter of fact, in Nehemiah, God uh, strenuously, vigorously charges them with violation of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was to be kept holy. That was an issue here. The issue was that the Pharisees had hedged about the Sabbath with a volume of legislation and regulation that made it almost impossible for man to breathe. They were minuscule, and they hedged them. And secondly, they wouldn't allow man to violate them for any reason whatsoever. Uh, you know, for example, there are dozens of these illustrations. For example, they made it a um, they made it a violation of the Sabbath if a man should use vinegar to brush his teeth. Now, I don't do that very much anyway. <laughs> but if he used vinegar to brush his teeth, that was work, and he violated the Sabbath. But if he happened to include it in the food of that day, then that wasn't any violation. And they hedged the Sabbath about a whole dozens and dozens of these minuscule laws. And Jesus, you remember, said, you burden the people down with these things. Peter said in Acts 15, why put the yoke of the law on the Gentile disciples, which yoke our fathers could never bear, and which yoke people are putting on Christians today in every city. We're not under the Mosaic law, but that doesn't mean we're lawless. We're under the law of Jesus Christ, which is infinitely higher, but gives us the power to do it, the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, they hedged about the law with all sorts of regulations, and so they came to this man and and he did on the Sabbath, verse 10, the Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, it's the Sabbath day. Now, you would have expected them to say, it's the Sabbath day. Uh, how come you got cured on the Sabbath day? But they don't. They said, it's not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. The man answered them, he that made me well, the same said unto me, take up your bed and walk. Now, some men say that the that the man was a coward here. I don't think so. I think this is a good answer. He said, uh, well, he said, the man that for the first time in 38 years cured me uh, said this to me. I figured if the man could help me walk, he could command me to do something. And so I obeyed him. I went ahead and did it. So they responded by saying in verse uh, 12, what man is that who said unto thee, take up your bed and walk? And he that was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had moved away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus finds him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made well. He states the fact, first of all. He calls attention to the man's condition. Thirty-eight years in that condition, now you're feeling good. You're well. Don't go back into it. Thou art made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing 
cover the vision. Now, two things there. Sin no more, the inference is that the man's sickness is due to sin. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come of you. By the use of the term worse, the inference is that his sin, that his illness was due to some sin, which we don't know. And that the man was continuing in that sin. Because the force of the command is, don't continue sinning. The same sin that brought him here was a sin in which he was now engaged. Jesus said, don't continue in that sin. Stop it. Lest a worse thing happen unto you. Now, what would the worst thing be? The eternal consequences of sin. That is, eternal hell. So Jesus warned him in this thing. Then we come to verse 16. Verse 15, the man departed, and in a large act of ingratitude, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now that's a thing. As the old saying, with friends like that, who needs enemies? See, here was the man that got cured of something he'd had for 38 years, and the first thing he did in order to stay in good with the Pharisees is he slipped down there and snitched on Jesus told them who it was. And verse 16, therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Then we come in verses 17 to 18, the second issue. The second issue. The first issue was the issue of the Sabbath. The second issue is is, is the issue of his claim, which he makes in verse 17. One thing before we pass on. Uh, notice there are three things that Jesus says to this man, and there's a logic in these three. Uh, three things he says to this man. The first one is in verse 6. The first one's a question. Wilt thou be made whole? The second one is a command. Verse 8. Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And the third one is a counsel. Counsel, advice. Verse 15, 14. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. There's a logic there. And, and, and there's a parallel at the same time. I think a proper parallel. With our conversion, before I'm saved, the Lord comes to me and he says, Do you want to be saved? Do you want to be well, spiritually? Do you want to be saved? I say yes. So he says the second thing, a command. Rise, believe, take up your bed, no relapse, get busy, walk. And I do so. But then I slip. And he comes to me, not once, but probably many times, sin no more, lest a worse thing happen to me. Now, as a Christian, I couldn't lose my salvation. But as a Christian, whatsoever man sows, that shall he also, and there are no crop failures in God's heart. The grace of God forgives the sin, but never prevents the heart. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come unto thee. Now the second issue, verse 17 18, the claims of Christ. Verse 17. But Jesus answered them, what did he answer to? 
answer. He says he answered. He didn't ask a question. Well, he answered their charge. He answered their charge. Why are you working on the Sabbath day? An unspoken charge. Jesus answered him, My Father worketh hitherto, and I also work. Now, the Lord made two great claims here. Here's his defense, and it rests upon his unity with the Father. He defends his right to heal on the Sabbath on the basis of his unique relationship to God. And there is a tremendous twofold claim in this verse. Tremendous twofold claim in this passage. It always amazes me that the Jews could see so quickly and easily what the modern religious liberals trip so lightly over. They saw immediately the thing to which he was laying claim. He said two things. Number one, my father, my father. And that didn't pass over the Jews. They saw it, next verse shows us, they interpret that to mean that he was claiming equality with God, and they were right in that interpretation. One thing Jesus never said was our Father. You say, what about the Lord's Prayer? Well, the thing about that is, it's not the Lord's Prayer. If there's one prayer Jesus didn't pray, it's the Lord's Prayer. Jesus never said our Father. He said, when you pray, you say, you say our Father. Why? Because that prayer says, forgive us our debts. Debts. What is that? Does he mean physical? No. One of the Greek words for sin is ophelema, which means a debt. And sin is a debt. Sin includes a debt. I owe God all my love. Have I ever loved him that way? No. That's a debt. It's a sin of omission. I ought to serve God with all my heart. Ever done it? No. That's a debt. That's a sin. Have I given to God all the thanks that I should give to God? Never. Then that's a sin. What does the Lord say? In everything, every circumstance, do what? Have you done that? That's a sin. See? Those are debts. But Jesus never was in debt to his heavenly Father. He lived a perfect life. That's one prayer he never prayed. When he saw Mary in John chapter 20 after his resurrection, he said, you go and tell Peter and the other disciples that I go to my God and your God and my Father and your Father. Probably, I think it's reversed. Go and tell them I go to my Father and your Father. My God, your God. The Father in his divine nature, God in relation to his human nature, but never our, never. My father, my father, the Jews saw that. That was a claim to divine equality. Then he made another claim. My father works hitherto. Now when you look here, what do you mean works hitherto? Well, he's speaking of what is called providence. God created all things, Genesis 1 and 2. After God created all things, he didn't engage in any more creative activity as far as his physical world. He's not making any more universes. 
He's not making any more land. He is not making any more Adams and Eve. Now God controls this universe by what's called providence. And God's providence, and we're going over this Friday morning in our men's class, God's providence includes the use of secondary causes and angels and direct intervention, miracles. The use of seven secondary causes is uh, gravity. The use of secondary causes is uh, conception. One time, God created one man and woman supernaturally. He did so a third time, the Lord Jesus. But all the other times, he brings us into existence by secondary causes, conception. That's called providence. Providence is that doctrine of the Bible that teaches us that God sustains all things, governs all things, rules over them, and carries them forward to a predetermined end. God's providence began the hour after his creation was finished. My father worked all the time up to right now. Then Jesus said, I also am working. I'm involved in that. As my father's been sustaining the universe, I have also. And the Jews understood that. Uh, perhaps a little more better than we do here tonight. See? They saw that clearly. That was a claim to be involved in the divine activity the great divine activity, the activity of providence. So what's their response in verse 18? Therefore, therefore, is that what your verse starts with? Therefore, therefore, and it ought to be there, therefore, therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him because charge number one, he had broken the Sabbath, charge number two, said also that God was his father. Now, how did they interpret that? He said that God was his father. What was their interpretation? By saying that, he made himself what? Yes. Now, we'll look. will you look up here? See, here are the Jews of the first century. Jesus said, my father. What was their interpretation of that? My father. A claim to equality with God. See, the liberals come along today and say, well, when he says, my father, he's simply indicating a filial relationship into which all of us can enter. No, 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 no. Jesus was laying claim to a unique relationship to God. My father. I related to God in a way that nobody else is related. This is a, the theologians would call this an ontological sonship. I'm a son by adoption. I'm adopted into the family of God. Jesus Christ is the son of the heavenly father eternally. There was a, never a time when Jesus Christ was not the son of God. He is the son of God in the sense that he shares equally in the attributes. With this, I close. When we say that Jesus is God, or when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, what do we mean? Let me tell you what we don't mean. 
When we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we don't mean that Jesus is more God-like. In fact, that he said perhaps of Moses and Isaiah and Peter and Paul and some of the great saints in history. When we say that Jesus is God, we don't mean that he's God-like. When we say, and when the New Testament says, that Jesus is God or that he's the Son of God, well, the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. Son. Well, the Bible uses these terms. The Bible means that that whatever we can attribute to God, we can attribute to Jesus. Whatever we can say of God, we can say of Jesus. What can we attribute to God? What do we what do we affirm of God? Well, we say that God is um, omnipotent. So is Jesus. We say that God is eternal. So is Jesus. We say that God is omniscient. So is Jesus. We say that God is immutable. He never changes. He never, in all the universe, ever had to make one change in his plan because he knew the end from the beginning. No need to make any changes. Therefore, he never changes. He's immutable. Jesus is immutable. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Whatever we can say of God, we can say of Christ. Why? Because Jesus is God. He shares equally with the Father and with the Holy Spirit the attributes of God. We learn a definition, some of us did, and our, my students do. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. It is being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. When we say that, when we say that, when we affirm that, we can affirm that of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The all three are God, God blessed forever, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is God. Now, why is that important? Important for many reasons. But above all else, it's important for this. If Jesus is not God, then the death he died on the cross is the death of a martyr. I don't need a martyr. I need a savior. Jesus be not God, then his death is the death of a good man, but the death of a martyr. Because Jesus Christ is God, the death he died is the death not of a martyr, but of a savior. God has so ordained it that that human nature that sinned must be redeemed by human nature. It's human nature that sinned. It must therefore be human nature that redeems sinners. It's not an angel. It's not God unincarnate. But the same human nature. So I read in Hebrews chapter 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. The only person that can redeem man is man. But, 
There are two things wrong with you and with me. First of all, if I were perfect, being a man, I could only die for one man. Not for two, only one. But secondly, I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. And since I'm a sinner, I can't die for anybody else. The one who saves me must be a man to shed blood, but he must be God in order for that blood to have infinite value. So redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And he must be sinless. Jesus was a man, he was sinless, and he was God. Because he was a man, he could die. Because he was God, that death had infinite value. It was the humanity of Jesus that enabled him to die and shed blood. It was the deity of Jesus that gave to that death infinite worth and enabled him to die for an infinite number of sinners. For how many people could an, how many people could an infinite person die for? Do you think an infinite person could die for only a limited group of people? No. As many as live, as many as live, it has infinite proportion because it's the act of an infinite person. That's why we hold so tenaciously to this great truth, the heart of our Christian faith, that Jesus Christ is God. And when the early church came to this truth, the doctrine of the Trinity, they didn't come to the doctrine of the Trinity for Lord. They knew that the Father was God. In the Gospels, they came to the understanding that Jesus is God. And then in the book of the Acts, they understood, Acts 5, that the Holy Spirit was God. And under the guidance of the Spirit of God, they put these three things together. The God is one, they never jettisoned that. We are monotheists, but we are tri Trinitarian monotheists. They never jettisoned monotheism. We believe that God is one, but he subsists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all equally God and each a distinct person from the other. And the heart of our Christian faith lies right here. And Jesus claimed to be God, and the Jews got that claim. They understood what he said. They knew he claimed to be God. Now, the only question is, on what grounds do we accept and acknowledge that claim? Well, we're going to take that up in the weeks that lie ahead.